May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, nerd alert. I mean, I realize it's me, so you already knew that. In the first few centuries of Christianity, the church was wrestling greatly with how to articulate the person of Jesus. Because the worship of the church, which was always the driving factor, required language for the divinity and humanity of Christ. Because largely the church is made up of Jewish people who are suddenly worshiping a human being. They needed to come up with theological language that was going to make sense of this phenomenon. These doctrines of Christ's humanity and his divinity are laid down for us most explicitly in the Nicene Creed that we pray every week. And the tension of Orthodox theology, especially at this point of Christology, is such that to stray in one direction or another, even just a little, leads to heresy. The church has always held that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. When we use the term begotten, we don't mean that the Son was created, for there was never a time when the Son of God was not. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in harmony and unity from eternity past. Jesus doesn't just seem like God. He doesn't assume Godness, and he doesn't just have Godlike qualities. He is God. Likewise, Jesus was fully human. He didn't pretend to be human. He didn't just assume humanness or have human-like qualities. He is human. For those of you who like sounding smarter than your friends, my Christmas gift to you is the term hypostatic union, right? Christ's humanity and divinity coexisting in his single person. It is at this exact place of upholding Christ's humanity and his divinity in the same breath that the Blessed Virgin Mary becomes such an important figure. For centuries, the church has honored Mary not simply as the mother of Jesus, a man, but as Theotokos, the mother of God. The Third Ecumenical Council, which was called in large part to do battle against the heresy of Nestorianism, a heresy that taught that the person born of Mary was simply the bearer of the divine principle, but wasn't actually himself God, okay? That's Nestorianism. And the Third Ecumenical Council was called to combat this, and the Nestorians were intent on referring to Mary as Christotokos, the Christ-bearer, not Theotokos, the God, I, war I warned you, this is really nerdy, okay? I get it. You've been eating, if you're like me, you've been eating cheese and cookies for every meal leading up to Christmas. It's, we're sleepy. But this is, this is a huge difference. Huge. The heretics refused to give Mary the title Theotokos because they did not believe that the baby that Mary carried in her womb was fully God. Right? St. Cyril of Alexandria refuted this heresy and his statement that
that the Holy Virgin is Theotokos inasmuch as in the flesh she bore the word of God made flesh. That line was adopted by the council at Ephesus as the universal teaching of the church. Mary is the mother of God. This is a mystery that, if not impossible to do otherwise, is at least best told slant. We have to sort of come at it from metaphors and figures, and Maximus the Confessor in his incredible work, The Life of the Virgin, combs scripture for those figures and images that point to the mystery of Mary's role in the incarnation of Christ. And at the very beginning of his book, he has this list of things that he refers to as descriptions of Mary. He calls her the throne of the king, more exalted than the cherubim and seraphim, the mother of Christ our God, the city of God of which glorious things are spoken. She was chosen before the ages by the ineffable forethought of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the source of the living water, the paradise of the living tree, the growing vine from which drink of immortality was brought forth, the river of the living water, the ark that contained the uncontainable, the urn of gold that received the manna of immortality, the unsown valley that sprouted forth the weed of life, the flower of virginity full of the perfume of grace, the lily of beauty, the virgin and mother from whom was born the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the treasure house of our salvation that is more exalted than all the powers of heaven. The church is often seen in the story of Moses and the burning bush, a picture of Mary. It was a tree that was on fire but did not burn. And so Mary contained within her womb very God of very God and yet was not consumed. The icon that I have put on the front of your order of worship is often referred to as Mary wider than the heavens because he who is wider than the heavens was held in her womb, in her arms. Corners of Protestantism have all but eradicated Mary from the church's life and I think it's to our own detriment. I, I really don't think that I can overstate how important and glorious Mary is as the mother of God. And I had a realization some months back, because even saying that now, I'm kind of like, oh, I mean, can I? Can I overstate it? I had a realization some months back that I think the instinct to occlude Mary is due to a scarcity view of glory. There's an assumption that if we honor Mary, we're somehow stealing glory from Jesus. But in fact, I think the more that we glimpse the power and glory and beauty of Christ our God, the more we will understand the honor that he himself gives to his mother. As the one through whom Christ became incarnate, she is truly more exalted than the cherubim and seraphim. Mary is the second Eve. But unlike Eve, who chose to distrust God's promise and act instead with pride and lust, Mary responds to the promise of God with quietness and trust. In this way, Mary is not just the prototypical woman. She is the prototypical Christian. She models for us what it means to be human, living her entire life as a beautiful response to God's grace toward her. So we should say with Gabriel, 
Hail Mary, full of grace. We should say with Elizabeth, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Everything I have said so far is summed up in Elizabeth's words as she essentially refers to Mary as the Queen Mother. She says, Why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? While Jesus is still in the womb. Because the person in Mary's womb is Jesus Christ the Lord, God's own son. The mystery of the incarnation and the nativity of Christ is a mystery that we will continue to try to find the corners of for an eternity. Now, what does Mary have to teach us about the God that she worships and the proper human response to him in her beautiful hymn, the Magnificat. Mary begins with praise and worship. She embodies what David Fagerberg so aptly said as the fundamental choice of every rational being, which is between a liturgical posture and an idolatrous posture. Mary isn't just a good woman, she's a liturgical woman. She orders her life around the work of worship in a joyful and loving response to the mercy and love of God. And so she responds to his grace and his mercy in her life with praise and worship and humility, but her humility is not weakness. It is the response of someone who has encountered the living God. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. You can tell that her humility isn't false modesty because in the very next line she prophesies that all generations will speak of her. And indeed, we still are to this day referring to her as the one blessed by God Almighty. As I've had the chance to meditate on the Magnificat and evening prayer, it's become more and more beautiful to me how the God that Mary describes in this song of praise sounds so much like the Christ who delivers the Sermon on the Mount. How did Jesus learn to speak of God in this way? I think when we take his humanity seriously, we see very clearly from his mother. She taught him about the work of God in her own life and raised him up in the same way. Mary's God is a God of reversals, a God who seeks out the lowly and the hungry, a God who casts down those who set themselves up in pride becoming more and more fashionable to point out the political implications of Mary's song. And there are incredibly poignant implications. But we shouldn't jump too quickly. After all, if this poem is on the lips of Mary wider than the heavens, it would stand to reason that her concerns aren't simply parochial. Her declaration that God has cast down the mighty from their thrones, Maximus tells us, is a reference to the demonic forces that had arrayed themselves against the one true God, demons that were indeed cast down from their thrones when Christ led them in victorious procession as he hung upon the cross. Mary's God is a God of strength and mercy, a God who remembers his promise made in antiquity to Abraham and all his spiritual children, a promise being brought to fulfillment in Mary. 
who is John Donne so beautifully penned, whose womb was a strange heaven, for there God clothed himself and grew. This little child being formed in her is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who will lift up the lowly and scatter the proud in their conceit. Of course, implicit in this declaration of God's penchant for dramatic reversals is a strong encouragement to us to put this wisdom into practice, to be humble and lowly people rather than clever and proud, lest we be scattered and struck down. Indeed, to be a Christian requires a rather pervasive humility. It requires us to recognize that we are unable to save ourselves. Not only that, it requires us to recognize that we are so misshapen by our own passions run amok, by the lies of the devil, and by the pressures of a worldly system bent on our destruction, that apprehending the truth is nearly impossible without epistemological humility. Meaning, we sometimes have to question ourselves, right? I don't know if you've noticed, but there are several Christian hymns that have been rewritten in recent years to excise any reference to a virgin giving birth. We've become far too scientifically clever for all of that, right? And yet, Mary's virginity, which requires epistemological humility, if nothing else, Mary's virginity is at the heart of the gospel of God's kingdom, and in multiple ways. At the very center, it is an enfleshed declaration that the incarnation is enacted by the will of God, not by the will of a husband. This is why there are so many echoes throughout the Old Testament running right up to Mary's cousin Elizabeth, stories of women who have been unable to conceive and are well past childbearing years, and yet through God's action have a child. Right? All the way back in the Old Testament. This is, this is the Chekhov's gun of God's macro playwriting. You guys know Chekhov's gun? If you have a gun in scene one, it's got to be fired by scene two. Right? And there's all of these stories from Sarah to Hannah all the way to Elizabeth of women who could not conceive and God acts. And it's a setup to get us to recognize that we are not the ones who are going to pull this off. God has to enter into the mess that we have made as one of us in order to save us. The virginity of Mary shows us that Christmas and indeed the entire gospel storyline are entirely built on the foundations of God's grace. It is God's action that brings this about. And he involves us in his work the other thing that Mary's virginity shows us is what a human life lived in right response to God's mercy and love can produce. Mary bore her Savior. She required the death of her own son for her salvation. And by God's mercy, Mary was able to overcome the lust of the flesh in a way that her predecessor Eve was not. Mary's virginity is a symbol not just of God's action over against the will of man, but also of a life lived to God rather than the passions of the flesh. Mary is saved by her son. He is her redeemer and king. And so well did she grasp this 
that she was given grace to live as we all ought to live, not in gratifying the desires of the flesh, but in walking in the Spirit. As St. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Let us be humble, the handmaidens of the Lord. May we seek to ponder the things of Christ in our hearts, like Mary. May we be given grace to be set apart as holy to the Lord, like Mary. May we respond with souls that magnify the Lord Christ as our God and King, like his mother Mary did. And may she pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.